it is with great joy we come again to God's Word today. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 13, and today we're going to wrap up this chapter. We wrap up this magnificent summer, I think. It's been a great summer in spite of all of our circumstances. It's been a great summer to study the kingdom parables and to set our minds on things above, not on things on earth, to think about the kingdom of Christ and all the description that uh, has been given to us through Jesus himself. This passage here, it's not a parable. Jesus, or Matthew, didn't see fit to end this passage with a parable, or perhaps Jesus was finished at that last parable. And so Matthew ends with really a, a transition uh, section, a section that transitions us to the next phase or the next part of Jesus' ministry. The next phase of Jesus' ministry, and really the phase that we continue to be in right now, is marked by increasing popularity and increasing rejection. Jesus' ministry, the gospel as a whole, grows and grows and grows in popularity. In fact, we're going to see just not too far from here, we're going to see amazing popularity. In fact, the peak of Jesus' ministry comes not far from here when Jesus feeds the 5,000, which according to many, that means uh, that was 5,000 men or 5,000 families numbered, uh, which could have been 10, 12, even 15,000 people all gathered around Jesus whom he fed miraculously. But it's also a time of great rejection. And we see this resistance to the kingdom. That's what I'm calling this passage, this unveiling. We've seen this sort of creeping in and creeping in. We, we saw it at the beginning of the parables. We saw it even, even a couple chapters ago as, as there began to be some rumblings, but now the resistance is, is more and more blatant. It's more open. It's more obvious. And this resistance really is growing. In fact, I told you some weeks ago that, that at about this time is when the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they begin to actually conspire. It wasn't just frustration. They weren't just vocalizing their irritation with this teacher. Now they began to conspire and plot and scheme. And that's what's happening in this time, this growing resistance to the kingdom. But this passage is a transition. He says, in spite of this resistance, there is this growing popularity. And you kind of compare these two things, this, this great popularity, these great truths of the kingdom, these, these disciples learning and understanding all these parables, and, and then this resistance at the same time. You remember last week, he says to his disciples, do you understand all these things? And they said, yes. And we learned then that Basically, what Jesus was saying is not, do you understand every nuance, every word I said, but he's saying, are you following me? Are you with me in all this? They say, yes. So there's this, there's this growing group of people who are truly following Jesus, and we read in this next section, this final section of chapter 13, this growing resistance. Well, we live in an era where this is happening, right? The kingdom is growing, but also there is kingdom resistance. And, and Jesus is calling people to surrender all, to surrender their worldview, to surrender their thinking, to surrender their theology, to the things they've held for many years, and He's calling people to surrender everything, giving up false worldviews, repenting and denying themselves, following Jesus, and what we found as we studied last week and as we study this week is there are a few people actually who really want to become true followers of Jesus Christ. Most people reject the message of the gospel in one way or another. And what was true back then is true now, isn't it? 
I mean, we live in an era where church even has become a place of maybe not open resistance or rejection of the Word, but, but at least a mild form of resistance to the Bible. We live in a day when many churches are really a, a consumer operation. So often, upon little inspection, we, we find out that a lot of churches are, are basically a, a business proposal. Their focus is on what the consumer wants, and of course, what the customer wants is always right. And so they fashion church not around the truths of Scripture, not around what the gospel says and what Jesus says and what the kingdom is supposed to be all about. Instead, they fashion their churches around what people want. And so this, in a mild way, maybe not in an open way, but in a mild way, is a resistance to the true kingdom of Jesus. They promise heaven with no real sacrifice. They promise joy of the kingdom without total surrender. From what we've studied so far, Jesus' word, this is a type of resistance to the true kingdom. And this is no difference than the kingdom resistance right there at the beginning of this kingdom. The Jews wanted all the blessings of the physical kingdom of the Messiah. They wanted all the blessings that what they thought the Messiah would bring. They wanted all of that. Most, though, would never accept a suffering servant. Most would not accept a sacrificial servant as their Messiah. They wanted glory. They wanted joy. They wanted food. They never wanted suffering and surrender that's required of true disciples. So Jesus is teaching in this passage that in this kingdom era, we will without question encounter resistance to the kingdom And he's going to explain what this resistance, at least in some way, what this resistance will look like. And then how do we respond? How do we think of resistance? And how do we identify in our own hearts a resistance to the kingdom? So let's read these verses together. I'll start in the 53rd verse of chapter 13, and then I'll go down to the end, verse 58. Matthew 13, 53 to 58. And when Jesus had finished these parables... He went away from there. Coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is, this not, is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except within his hometown and his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And God bless the reading of his word. I'm going to give you a little preview of what's happening in the weeks to come. A few months ago, uh, as we got started on our study of the parables, as we began the study of the parables, I discussed with the other elders uh, this section that we were approaching the parables and asked some questions of them and kind of wondered about these themes. There are two very central themes in the parables, in these kingdom parables, two ideas that I think make a lot of us quite uncomfortable. I mentioned this at the beginning when we started the parables. I I mentioned these ideas. In fact, I spent a whole Sunday. There was a whole sermon there as we got into the purpose of the parables, the reason why Jesus was preaching these parables. And I talked a little bit about 
this, these truths that make us quite uncomfortable, that make us sort of squirm in our seat when we hear about these things, and, and maybe make us a little bit defensive as we think about these things. What are these two things? Well, one truth, as Steve mentioned just a minute ago, one truth is the sovereignty of God, particularly when it comes to salvation. That, that makes us a little bit uncomfortable, right? And Jesus said, back up in verse 11, look what it says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. The one who has more will be given, and he will be having abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And if you can remember that far back, I talked about this. When we read this, it sort of sounds unfair. It sort of sounds like, hey, hang on a second. God, you're, you're supposed to be just and, and fair, aren't you? An equal opportunity saver? D- don't you give everybody the same chance to get saved and just sort of leave that up to them? It just doesn't sound very fair. Let people decide for themselves. Don't you do that? And I pointed out to you that one of the things we must do as we come to salvation is what we just sang about moments ago. It's to admit that we have a corrupt sense of fairness and justice, and God's sense of fairness and justice is always right. No matter what we see, no matter what we may perceive, no matter what we've thought our whole lives, no matter what worldview we may be coming from, we have to admit no matter what happens, no matter what we think, God does not stand under our scrutiny. God does not stand under our judgment, our sense of fairness, our sense of justice. Thousands of years of human justice and fairness. How are we doing on that, us humans? Not very good, are we? I think that America is probably, if not the greatest, one of the greatest countries to ever exist in terms of fairness, in terms of human rights, in terms of civil rights. I think this is probably the best place on earth in all of human history. How are we doing in terms of human justice? We stink at it, right? We're not good at it. So we do not put God under our sense of fairness. We don't come to God and say, wait, that's not fair what you say here. That's not fair. You're not just. No, we say, God, you're always just. You're always fair. You know always what is right and what is true and what is just and what is fair. So I yield to this. So that's one sort of uncomfortable truth that we have to yield to. Another uncomfortable truth, and probably not as, as uh, bothersome to us non-Jews in the 21st century as it was to those in the first century as Jews. In fact, back then, that first doctrine probably wasn't very bothersome to them, but the second doctrine probably was more bothersome to them than, than the first one, and that is, what about God's people? What do we see here is that Jesus is essentially judging God's people, the people of Israel. He's leaving the people of Israel. He's judging the people of Israel. He's moving to the Gentiles. Basically, Jesus is telling their status as, as God's people is in jeopardy. And though we know the rest of the story that there will be a time when many Jews do repent, Jesus is saying this kingdom, this era is marked by, by and large, Jewish rejection. And Jesus tells the people at Nazareth, When he goes there, his hometown, and preaches them, he told them God basically chose to heal people outside of Israel. What do the people do in Nazareth? They pick up stones. They want to run them off a cliff. They hate Jesus. They want him dead. 
So those two ideas are central to all these kingdom parables. We've walked through all these kingdom parables, and we've sort of touched on those, those uncomfortable ideas from time to time. And, and again, back several months ago, when I kind of looked forward and saw this, I asked the other elders, I said, would it be wise for us to pause and go to the part of the Bible that talks explicitly about the sovereignty of God and salvation and the people of Israel? And that's Romans 9 to 11. You know, it's been six years since I've preached that part of the Bible. We went through Romans, and we spent our time there. And Romans 9 through 11, we studied that six years ago. Those two subjects, God's sovereignty and salvation and God's plan for Israel. And uh, I figured since, again, the, the second problem is probably not nearly as bothersome for us as the first doctrine... Uh, I, think, uh, I think we'll just look at chapter 9. So after this Sunday, we're going to hunker down, go back six years in time, go back to Romans 9, and spend our time looking at that. Uh, you know, we, though we are uh, a church that believes in God's sovereignty and salvation, uh, we only teach about it, we only talk about it when it sort of comes up and bubbles up in Scripture. And it has been sort of on the surface of this Scripture and uh, we don't, you know, rail on this all the time, but it's, it's there, and I feel like that sometimes it makes us uncomfortable, so it's good to sort of pause and go back and say, now, what does the Bible say about human choice and human responsibility and God's sovereignty and how it fits together and how does it make sense? It just seems like there's these two lines of logic that, that completely oppose one another. How do we think through all this? And so I thought it might be good, and, and basically, it just, just so you know, just as I predicted several months ago, some questions have been rising up. I've had several people come to me and ask questions about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and, and just as we predicted. So I think it's going to serve us well next week to look at this uh, doctrine, at least, at least for several weeks as we look at Romans 9. Well, the reason I tell you this and give you a little preview is because when we humans are confronted with a worldview that we do not hold, even if it's a worldview that's plainly stated in Scripture, we resist. By nature, we resist. We resist much like the people of Jesus' day resisted the kingdom of Jesus as he preached it. We resist. And I don't know if you've ever had these moments, and I have as a, as a pastor in seminary, even in college as I studied the, the truth, the word. I had moments where I came across truths in Scripture, and, and I, I put up a wall of resistance. That, that can't be Right? That can't be true. It's not what I feel like is true. It doesn't seem like that's, that's not what I heard. I don't think it's what I heard, at least, growing up. And I had to break down those walls of resistance and receive what the Scripture said to me. How do people resist? I wrote down several ways that people resist. You could probably come up with more. How do people resist the kingdom? How do people resist Christ? How do people resist the gospel, the truths of Scripture? Well, for one, they simply resist by avoiding Scripture. People resist by avoiding Scripture, refusing to, to think about what Scripture says. They enjoy blissful ignorance, right? Ignorance is bliss. I'm just going to avoid these things, these things that don't sit well with me. I'm just going to kind of steer clear of those truths. I'm just going to kind of avoid that so I don't have to think about that too much. It sort of bothers me, these verses or these doctrines. I'm just going to kind of avoid it. Don't want to think too much. Don't want to really get into it. They don't want to analyze verses. They don't want to think through what it actually says. And so they just say, you know, I'm just going to steer clear of those kind of things. Someone told me one time, Pastor, we don't want to think too much. That's what we pay you to do. 
Now, again, one great benefit of preaching what's called Lectio Continua, through books of the Bible, through the Bible, is that you're forced to think and deal with passages that you may otherwise avoid. You're forced to just come to them and deal with them. Others resist the kingdom by misinterpreting Scripture. They just tie themselves into knots trying to to pigeonhole Bible statements, plain Bible statements, into their worldview, things that they've already thought. Just twist it all around, make it so illogical so long as it fits their worldview. They don't care how silly their interpretation sounds. The Pharisees were famous for this. Down in chapter 15, Jesus points out that they twisted a Scripture about giving money to the temple in a way that they could, they twisted it in a way that they could just keep all their wealth and hoard all their wealth and, and deny their parents care. Their ailing, ailing parents needed help, and what they would do is they would say, this is Corbin, this is money that I've dedicated to the Lord, so sorry, Mom, sorry, Dad, sorry that you're dying, sorry that you're suffering, sorry that I, I just can't take care of you because I've dedicated this to the Lord. Jesus says you dishonor the Lord. You honor your parents. And that's the way that you honor the Lord. So people twist Scripture to make it fit in to their worldview, and in that way they resist the kingdom. A third way people resist the kingdom of Christ is by questioning Scripture. This goes all the way back to Satan and Eden, right? When he talked to Eve, has God really said? People do this. They come to the Bible with all kinds of doubts, all kinds of skepticism, They don't come with faith seeking understanding or an understanding seeking faith. They don't come to the Bible with this this idea of, of, Lord, I believe, give me, Lord, I have faith, give me more faith, help me believe more, help me grow. No, they come with doubts and skepticism. They believe that the Bible has to stand up to their level of scrutiny and their level of intelligence instead of being under the Bible, a very arrogant position and They resist the kingdom in that way. Well, again, there's other ways that people resist the kingdom or the preaching of the kingdom. And what we have today is a demonstration of one of those ways, a kind of resistance. And this resistance, from looking at this resistance, we can learn how to think about how people in our era resist the kingdom, maybe even our own hearts, how how we resist the kingdom. We should check our hearts. We should check our hearts for any kind of stubborn spirit. And we should take to heart that this era is marked by, yes, a growth of the kingdom, a happy expansion of Christ's kingdom that that cannot stop no matter what politics or what viruses or what's going on in this world. The kingdom of Christ will grow, and we can be content with that even if we see widespread hatred and resistance. A number of truths that we can learn from this. All right, what is true about the rejection of Christ? What is true about the resistance of His kingdom? What is... The resistance of the kingdom do, what's it look like? First of all, resistance of the kingdom, number one, argues falsely. It argues falsely. Resistance to Jesus, resistance to his kingdom, and all the accompanying truths of the kingdom in Scripture, what does it do? It argues a false logic. It presents a logic that is fallible and full of fallacy. So here's the logic. They, they give the logic why they're resisting Christ. Jesus goes to Nazareth, his hometown, and, and they give the logic. That's found in verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. So Jesus 
finishes the parables, and then he goes and teaches in his hometown. He taught them in their synagogue, and they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary? Isn't his, aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? That's not the Judas, the disciple. Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Now, what's going on? Well, Jesus goes to his hometown, goes to the synagogue. This is what he would do. We talked about this at the beginning of of Matthew. Jesus, as his habit, was to go to a town, much like we would see in the Apostle Paul later on. He would go to the synagogue. And the first thing that he would do is he would he would do synagogue preaching was a little bit different, which was a little bit different than, than preaching on the hillside or, or preaching to the crowds. He would, essentially, it was a precursor to Christian preaching, what would happen in churches. Jesus would go to the synagogue. He would ask for a scroll. They would bring them the scroll, a part of Scripture. He would read that Scripture. Then he would explain the meaning of that Scripture, and they would apply it to the hearts of the people, much like what we do in Christian churches today all over. That's essentially what Jesus was establishing in his synagogue ministry. And so that's what Jesus did in his hometown. And obviously he knew people and they knew him and they allowed him that position of authority. They allowed him to come in and take the scroll and teach there at his home synagogue. Now, we come to this, there's actually two schools of thought uh, in terms of what people believe what's going on here. Uh, One group says, now, this is Jesus's one and only time that Jesus went to Nazareth. He he did all this ministry around Galilee, and he preached, and he preached the parables, and right after he preached the parables, he goes to, uh, 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 well, after he preached the parables, uh, he finished, and and if you look at the grammar there, it doesn't mean that the very next thing that happened was this visit to Nazareth. Matthew clearly, as you look at the grammar, doesn't force us to believe that. If you look at the grammar there, it looks like what Matthew was doing is taking a story of resistance earlier in Jesus' ministry and placing it at this point as a transition to this era of resistance. And they have a, they have a point there. Matthew just wants to give us a transitional story. It sounds like us to us in the English, at least in the ESV, that it just happens in, in sort of a train. Jesus finished the parables. He went from the, away from there and coming to his hometown. So you kind of think, well, okay, he left there and he went to his hometown. But actually, the grammar there and the language there does not force us to, to say that. In other words, these scholars say there should be a period after the word there. He went away from there. And then he introduces another idea. Jesus went to his hometown at some point in his ministry. He went to his hometown, and he tells this story of people resisting and taking offense at him. And so they have a point there. The other option is to say, no, Jesus actually went to his hometown more than once. And even though the language is the same, even though there's some parallel to Luke chapter 4, these are actually two different visits. There's nothing about wanting to stone him or to kill him or whatever, and surely they would have, Matthew would have included that if that's what happened here. So I think both viewpoints uh, are pretty likely. They both kind of work for me, but uh, I don't think either one changes the meaning of the text. Both, both groups of scholars, both schools of thought agree on the meaning of the text. This is an era of growing resistance. This era, especially after the parables, was an era of growing resistance. So whatever camp you fall in, it really doesn't matter. You're going to have the same meaning of this section. Well, I want us to look at this false argument that these guys use. And let me just be clear here. Just get this in your mind. Any resistance 
to the gospel. Any resistance to the word of God, any resistance to the kingdom, any resistance to Jesus Christ, any resistance to scripture argues falsely. It is built on a house of cards. It is false logic. And it may be very detailed and it may be very, very scientific. It may be go really, really deep into philosophy or science or whatever, but anything that would cause you to resist Christ, to resist the truth of Scripture, any of it, ultimately is illogical and false. And that's what's demonstrated here. All of this is based on false arguments. In philosophy or in speech and debate, false arguments are called logical fallacies. Fallacies means errors, mistakes, things that are contradictory, logical fallacies. These are illogical arguments. And and what's offered here as an argument against Jesus and as, as an argument against his preaching, as a resistance, what's offered here is their reason to reject Jesus is a logical fallacy that's called the false dilemma or the false dichotomy. What are some other logical fallacies? You know these, even if you don't have names for them, even if you don't, have never studied speech and debate or philosophy, you, you know that there are ways to argue that are false, that don't hold water, they're illogical. One false argument is called a red herring argument. Have you heard of this? A red herring argument is, is, a, is a, a method of distraction. This is when someone avoids the discussion about the central issue by throwing out a red herring, by throwing out something that distracts everybody from the argument. You might hear someone say something like this, oh, Christians were responsible for the Crusades, where many people died. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with the claims of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the message of Scripture, but they throw this out to sort of sidetrack the argument and get you off on a tangent that has nothing to do with the claims of Scripture. That's a logical fallacy. It's called the red herring fallacy. Another common argument against Christ is what it's called a straw man argument. You've heard of that as well, a straw man fallacy. A straw man fallacy is when a person argues against a fictitious, a fake, a made-up caricature that can easily be argued against. Christians are legalistic hypocrites. That's why I could never become a Christian. Again, this has nothing to do with the claims of Christ. This has nothing to do with the gospel. This has nothing to do with the Scripture. It's, it's building up some kind of image of a Christian and then defeating that. Of course, no one wants to be a hypocrite legalist. So it's easy to argue against a hypocrite legalist rather than to argue, argue against the claims of Christ and the claims of Scripture. And so they build up a straw man that they can easily take down. A straw man is easily defeated. Well, again, this is an avoidance of the actual claims of the gospel, the actual claims of Jesus. Well, what we have here in this passage is is another uh, logical fallacy that's called a false dilemma or a false dichotomy. This is also called the either-or dilemma, the either-or fallacy. This is when you limit the options of belief to two options, even if there are more than two options. You can hear this. Where did this man get his wisdom? Where did this man get these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's son? Are, aren't these his brothers? James, Joseph, Simon, Judas? Again, none of those are the, are the apostles with similar names. These are his brothers. Are not his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these false things? 
In other words, they're saying this. You're from Nazareth, Jesus. You're one of us. Therefore, you can't be the Son of God. You are either the Son of God and not one of us, or you are not the Son of God and one of us. It can't be both. There's no place for being of us and being the Son of God at the same time. It's either or, Jesus. And again, this is the either or fallacy. This is a logical fallacy. The false dichotomy. They reject Jesus on that basis. The option they refuse to consider is that he is both of them and from them and from Nazareth, and he is the Son of God. That option they have eliminated. They say it's impossible. They're not, again, engaging the argument of Christ. They're engaging in false arguments. And like I said, in the end, any rejection and resistance to Jesus, even if it's very complicated and very thought out, in the end, it is fallacious, it is illogical. Volumes have been written by hundreds and hundreds demonstrating this reality. Any resistance and argument against Jesus Christ, against His claims, against the Word of God, fall prey to one or more logical fallacy. They argue falsely. They're not arguing coherently. It makes no sense. They did not give room for the option that the Son of God could have come from Nazareth. But had they looked at Scripture, had they looked at truth, had they looked into the claims, had they looked into the evidence even, they would have discovered, yes, indeed, the Son of God grew up right here among us in Nazareth. So resistance to the kingdom argues falsely. Number two, resistance to the kingdom uncovers sin. Jesus took this opportunity to then point out the sin that was revealed about them when they resisted him. Verse 57, they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Now, this is not a quote from the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't say it's a quote, but there is Old Testament precedence. If you look at Jeremiah 11.21 or Jeremiah 12, verse 6, it's almost like Jesus took these ideas of prophets being resisted, combined them, and he actually may have even coined this term. It's something that maybe you've heard before. A prophet is not without honor except within his hometown. It's a way of saying he finds honor everywhere except where people know him. Years ago, I had graduated from seminary, and I'd been pastoring a church for a while up in Indiana. Lived there for four years, and my dad convinced me to come to Oklahoma City and uh, return to the church that I essentially grew up in. Our, our family moved there when I was uh, toward the end of, or maybe the middle of the fourth grade. And he wanted me to come there, and he wanted there to be a transition. He wanted, uh, for over a period of years, for the ministry to transition to me, and I would slowly uh, adopt certain roles, pastoral roles. Even in, fact, in fact, I started out by preaching every Sunday night, and any time my dad was gone, I would, I would preach. And, and, and truth be told, by and large, as I was there, things went good, things were smooth, things were well. But I did notice something. The people in his church that knew me as a boy, boy, they had a hard time. They just struggled with little Johnny up there speaking authoritatively. In fact, it's funny because we came there when I was in the fourth grade. But I would have people, older people would come up to me and say, you know, I remember when you were in the nursery right here in the church. 
Well, unless I had some serious problems, I don't think I was in the nursery in the fourth grade. Someone told me, I remember changing your diapers in the nursery. Okay. But in their mind, it was just hard for them to think of me as an authority. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying here. People had a hard time thinking of him as a son of God. Even if it was true, even if all the evidence was in, even if he had fulfilled the promises, even if he had spoken what is true, even if he had all this miraculous evidence that he was a son of God, people had a very illogical, very emotional way of resisting the son of God. It was hard for people who watched Jesus mature and grow up. It was hard for them to to suddenly receive him as an authority, and not just an authority, but the authority as king of their lives. So they rejected him, not because of some falsehood he spoke, not because of the promises that he failed to fulfill. No, he spoke truth, and he fulfilled all the promises. The real reason they rejected him is simply they didn't want his authority in their lives. It's a basic reason, and that's what Jesus points out. You guys reject me because of sin. You do not. You resist not just this idea of the kingdom or some weird doctrine. By resisting the doctrine of the church, by resisting this truth, by resisting the kingdom, you are resisting God. You're resisting me, the Son of God. And that is a sin. This points us back to Jeremiah. Even all the God-ordained prophets, these men were rejected not because what they did or what they said, but because simply because People did not want God's authority in their life because they rejected the authority of God. This takes us all the way back to Eden again, doesn't it? The rejection of God's authority. Ladies and gentlemen, that is why the base reason why people reject Christ and resist the kingdom is because they don't want God's authority in their life. Now, they'll take the love of God in their life, the help of God in their life. They love the encouragement of God and the the friends of God, the church of God. They'll have all of those great, warm, encouraging things in their life, but they don't want to be ruled by God. And that resistance will damn them. Contrast that attitude the attitude of the Apostle Paul who frequently called himself a slave of God. Contrast that attitude to to Samuel, the prophet, who cried out, Speak, Lord, your servant listens. Contrast that to Isaiah who said, Here am I, send me. In fact, the definitive quality of a true Christian is his constant, willing submission to God. Can I say that again? You may want to write it down. The definitive quality of a true Christian is his constant, willing submission to God. It's his desire to give up anything and everything in order to follow Jesus. That's why Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you must what? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. And I think this is the saddest and most dangerous reality about so much of 
what we see is Christianity, so much labeled Christianity these days. Sure, there's legalistic movements that cause problems, and we need to be concerned about that. Sure, there are theological movements with great theological errors, and we need to be concerned about. But I think the biggest threat and the biggest producer of false believers is a brand of Christianity that says you can get to heaven, you can be at peace with God, you can have all the blessings of heaven and God and the fellowship, you can enjoy the the joy of being justified, but you never really need to worry about submission and surrender to the rule of God in your life. When the pinnacle objective of a church is no longer this truth, but is replaced, this idea of submitting to God is replaced with this idea that, oh, we want to be non-judgmental. If, if a church's primary goal is to make sure everyone is affirmed in whatever they feel, everyone is okay with God as long as they feel good, and to provide them an experience that affirms them and, and helps them in terms of their own self-image. When a church is like that, what is produced is a whole bunch of false believers People who love the fringe benefits but have never truly surrendered to the rule of God in their lives. They may believe in all the data. They may affirm all the Christian stuff. They may sing Christian songs, listen to Christian radio, pray all the time, but they've never done the one thing that Jesus said was required of them to be a disciple. Follow him. Deny yourself. So many people are going to burn in hell believing they were Christians just because they were around Christian stuff. And had a positive idea, but they never repented and truly followed. Now, if you ask these people at Nazareth, you going to heaven? They'd say, sure. You love God? Sure. We sing about it every Sabbath. The synagogue, we sing about it, talk about it, read about it. But their resistance, and resistance to and rejection of Jesus here in this passage uncovers a sin they may not have even been aware of. that they would not have God as Lord of their lives. They would not have Jesus as their authority, and that sin would eventually take them to hell. All right, number three, and we'll finish today. So resistance to Christ's kingdom argues falsely. It uncovers sin. What else? Number three, it decreases blessings. The very last verse of chapter 13 a sad verse, a tragic verse. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. There's a story in the Bible that's found in 1 Samuel chapter 4. It's a very sad story. The people of Israel were being attacked by their neighbors, the Philistines. And, of course, we, we know that that was a constant, in ancient Israel, that was a constant, their constant enemy. They constantly were going against people of Israel. And by the way, that's where the word Palestine comes from. The, the, uh, when the Arabs decided to take over that part of the world as an affront to the Jews, they decided to call it uh, Philistine or, or Palestine. And they wanted the, the Jews to be reminded of their ancient em- enemy. These Philistines were against the people of Israel. And the people of Israel, though they believed God to be omnipresent all over the earth at all the time, they also knew symbolically God's presence was in the Holy of Holies, dwelling really in the, uh, the mercy seat there between the cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant. They, they kind of, they described it, I had one Jewish guy describe it to me as, they thought, they think of that's where God's face is. 
Although God is omnipresent, He's everywhere at once, this is sort of the, the manifest presence of God. And, and of course, only that, that place would only be accessed one time a year. Under the penalty of death, no one could go in that room except for the Day of the Atonement. But here they were fighting against the Philistines, and they, they, wanted, they wanted a leg up. They wanted to, to somehow outdo these Philistines, and someone came up with an idea. I don't know who it was, but someone said, you know, why don't we get the ark? Well, you get the ark, man. It's going to encourage everybody. Everyone's going to see, you know, remember the power of God and God's presence with us. It's going to remind them of, of all the great ancient things that have happened and kind of defiance of of the Scripture, defiance of the rules about the Holy of Holies and the, and the Ark of the Covenant and how you handle the Ark of the Covenant, they, they did it. They, they took the Ark of the Covenant and they, they took it out into battle. What happened? 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 5. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Now, stop right there. So far, so good for the Israelites, right? It's having the desired effect. The Philistines are trembling. They're scared. They're afraid. They don't even know that it's a god, not gods. They just know that it's the, the god or gods of the Hebrews, and, and he's with them, and, and they knew all the stories of what had happened many, many years, hundreds of years before, and they were, they were frightened. They were scared. They were worried. Woe to us means we're cursed. We are now cursed. It's, it's going to happen. We're going to die But what ended up happening is the exact opposite. Verse 9, this is what the Philistines say to themselves. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel died. And the Ark of the Covenant of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Eli was the high priest, Hophni and Phinehas died. They actually did the exact opposite. It actually inspired the Philistines to fight what the Jews did that day. A few verses later, it says that the son of the high priest Phinehas, his wife, upon hearing, uh, who was pregnant, upon hearing the death of her husband, went into labor and had a boy, and she called him Ichabod, which translated means God's glory has departed. But what is sad is, is not some box. That ark was not lost due to faithfulness and obedience. If that were the case, then God would have sustained them. Even, even if they had lost the actual battle, God would have still have sustained them and encouraged them. No, the ark was a representation of how the people, that what they'd handled the ark with is how the people had resisted the rule of God in their lives. And by so doing, they rid themselves of the very thing that caused blessing and fortune in their lives. They took it to battle. They resisted God. They resisted His law. They resisted His truth. They resisted what He had told them, how to do this, how to handle this, how to trust in Him. And they turned to the ark 
of great symbol that God had commanded as a great symbol. They turned to this symbol as though the symbol was the God. And they tried to take this out as some sort of amulet that would give them great victory. And instead of looking to God, instead of looking to His Word, instead of trusting Him, they looked to other things. And by doing that, by resisting God, by resisting His rule, by resisting His truth, by resisting the Scripture, they removed the blessing of God in their lives. And I tell you that story because it demonstrates how even, even foolish people, even unbelievers, can often enjoy the, the spillover blessings of of Christ and His kingdom. They're just around it. They're around Christians. And it should be true, though sadly it's not true because many people who are far are false Christians, but it should be true that if you work with a Christian at work, it's a blessing. That if you have a Christian boss, it's a, it's a blessing. That if you are, 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 have a Christian family, that that family is a blessing to others, even if they're not believers. There should be constant spillover blessings of being around believers and people who are in the kingdom. Spillover blessings. Even Unbelievers are recipients of spillover blessings because they're being around believers. But they can become so resistant to Christ. They can get so, uh, object, so uh, angrily objecting to the things of Christ that they just shove all of that out of their life, and therefore they shove all those spillover blessings that they might enjoy otherwise. They shove that out of their lives as well. This is what is so scary I think about what we hear about from many politicians, many leaders in our country. They don't just want separation of church, which incidentally, I think is a separation of church is said, I think is a biblical idea. There are realms of jurisdiction. The government should not force a religion or involve itself in the church. But for them, many politicians, many people in the public square, that's not enough. They want every last vestige of our Judeo-Christian history. They want every last vestige of Christ and Christianity hidden away. They want to shove it to dark recesses. They want it muted. They want it to be wiped out. The sad reality is, as they grow more and more successful at doing this, the blessings, all those spillover blessings of godly people and moral people and people who look to Scripture and truth as their guide, all of those blessings subside. And I think they're fading in our country because those things are being shoved away. Well, that's what's going on here. Jesus, because of this incessant resistance, he said, I'm not going to go back there. I'm not going to do many miracles there. He withdrew. The glory of the Lord departed. Jesus didn't go back there. He didn't feed people there. He didn't bless people there. He didn't heal people there. It's interesting because if you look at the the, the Gospels, you realize that so much of Galilee was blessed. Tens of thousands of people were healed. Jesus healing thousands upon thousands, sometimes going three, four days at a time, not even sleeping, just healing one person after the other, after the other, after the other with the exception of Nazareth. They didn't receive blessing. So resistance to Scripture, resistance to the kingdom, resistance to the gospel deprives people, decreases the blessings of God. Jesus kicked the dust off His feet. He left His hometown. He 
Never came back. Never worked any miracles there again. We've come to the end of our time of the parables. It ends with this warning, doesn't it? Don't resist. Receive. Don't resist the kingdom. Don't resist the truths of the kingdom. Don't resist the scripture. Receive them. Don't reject. Accept. It also ends with an encouragement for believers. Don't be surprised about rejection and resistance. In this era, it's marked, yes, by a marching kingdom and such a joyful truth that this kingdom is growing and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. But at the same time, it's marked with rejection and resistance and hatred. I've said this before. Give any society, give any government, give any country enough time and they'll get around to persecution. It's happened over and over for 2,000 years. It just doesn't take a country very long to get to the point where it persecutes Christians. We're going to live in this era. We may face times we've discussed even in this time. How do we handle it? What do we handle with the, all these orders that seem to change every week and come down the pike? How do we as a church handle it? It seems to change every time. And what as a church should we be doing? We're thankful that they have not put us in awkward positions at this point. But maybe it's not this disease. Maybe it's not this time. Maybe it's another time when that resistance is pushing us to the point of persecution. And that's an encouragement to us that this is what God has planned. This is what God has mapped out. This time of resistance, this time of martyrdom and persecution and hardship, this is what this era is all about. We shouldn't be surprised when the fiery trials come upon us. And this message is also for those who maybe have been resisting the gospel, resisting the truth of God, maybe not openly, maybe not even mentally or emotionally, but down deep in their heart, they have yet to truly surrender The encouragement is to give in to the call of Christ and the call of the gospel. Let's look at our own hearts and inspect it for any kind of resistance to any truth of Scripture and pray for the kind of commitment we need even now. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. And, Lord, you do present us with things that challenge our minds, challenge our thoughts, challenge our deeds, our actions, our activities. And, Lord, may we be found faithful, faithful in our submission to your truth in our submission to your word. Help us love you in these things by being broken and malleable and changeable and teachable. Help us not be resistant to the kingdom as the people of Jesus' own hometown were. God, I pray this is true for all of us who are believers in this time as we look and see this world and as we look at our own hearts and try to weed out any resistance. I pray for those also who our unbelievers who have not repented but still in their own way resist. Grant them a broken heart. Soften them to the gospel. Call them to salvation. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.